Hi, and welcome to the Dewing Grain podcast. Dewing Grain are independent and local grade traders. From seed supply to harvest movement and storage contracts, they can offer you the best strategies to achieve the highest prices for your harvest. Each week on our podcast, we begin with the Dewing Grain Market Report, giving you up-to-date information and analysis, followed by Farm Chat, where we catch up on agricultural issues with a guest or two while sampling a beer. Andrew's favourite bit. So let's start with Andrew Dewing and this week's Market Report. Welcome to the Market Report. What follows are my thoughts or gut instincts on what the market is going to do. It is not an instruction to trade. Any decision to trade is yours. Market report for week commencing 10th of October 2022. This is the Doing Grain on tour, and I would liken our tour to a rugby tour without the rugby. But it's fun, and a lot of other people have to be a bit more serious than us. But the dynamic of how the, the world turns, I think our system of kind of being available for drinking other people's beer for free and then being in a bar where everybody congregates anyway kind of ticks all the boxes without having to spend lots of money on a stand. And yeah, and we have some fun with it, which again, some of these guys have to go to certain events or dinners and things, and it's all very formal, and they're all pretty exhausted by standing up all day at the bourse in the first place. So yeah, we have a bit more fun than probably we should. However, the downside is you end up with a couple of zombies called Ben and Webby with you in the morning when they've rolled in at four o'clock, having been drinking for no reason whatsoever and looking like death warmed up. Anyway, they're, they're missing at this point chasing the coffee bean to see if it can get themselves alive. So I'm going to give you a quick UK price report. Feed wheat for November is 266x farm in Norfolk. The futures are trading at 281. We don't really want any November wheat. We've pretty well you know stuffed out with it we need december wheat and onwards but we've got everybody who sold it to us kind of filling all the homes we've got at the moment we're trying to make some more space i'm pretty sure most merchants are in that mode as well although they won't actually say it out loud to you so if you've got an expensive contract 300 plus then you're going to see some fun and games where people push those contracts into later months and if you've got a cheap contract it'll move and i'm not talking about us i'm talking about the grain trade Okay, so uh, I'm afraid that's the reality of where we're at. If it gets difficult to load, that's what happens. So looking on the carry, I want to talk about this. This is the biggest issue at the moment in in the market. The Nov wheat is trading at 281. We've mentioned in previous weeks from when it was £6 difference to May that it would go out to a bigger carry. Well, it's now trading at £11 or just under £11 a tonne. We predict that will go at least to 16 Now, I might be wrong. It's been known. But I cannot see anyone who picks up November wheat losing any less than a tenner by having that in their bag. And there's interest rates going up there's a bigger rent and what is the point of owning something that is effectively trading at a premium to the delivered market so the only way they can get away with pretending they've made money out of it is by sitting hold of it and paying the rent and paying the money up front and then selling it next may maybe but yeah as i say i think there's a little bit of a car crash potentially coming because we can't work out who the long is who's the person who's going to take those deliveries who's got to write that check out whether they actually know they've got to do it or not yet and i think that's that's a technical issue but it's incredibly interesting so the carry to may you know we would be paying for may wheat something like 280 i don't know 84 283 something like that which is 16 quid is it i don't know yeah 16 17 pound carry just to have the stuff in store so you know make a note of that of storage facilities feed barley 245x for nov or 255 delivered ipswich we have got a boat in november going out of ipswich and we need some tonnage for it 
we don't get it from you, we'll get it from our store. But either way, we've actually got a market to go. And, you know, we're doing our bit for UK exports. In fact, we've got a couple of cargoes, uh, so we will be piling all of our barley out in that period. And if we buy some off farm, we might keep a bit up our shirt, but can't see the point in paying to store something like that. Malting barley, as I've mentioned in previous weeks, a rough outline figure, 275x farm. Depending on grade, depending on nitrogen quality, you know, it's worth having that conversation. I think the kind of surge of buying will come in with November. People will look at how much they've got bought and come in and do a refresh of buying a few more tonnes. One or two of the guys with some very good sale prices will be looking to buy out of the market. It's what's called a short. They've, they've sold into a molster and they've perhaps swapped their stuff to go onto a boat and they now want to buy in the home that they've got sold into, say, somewhere like Berry or Stowe Market. And uh, they're in the open trade bidding against the molster. So there's, there's a bit of life in that one. Oilseed rape, I don't really know because Ben's downstairs in a cafe holding his head, grunting at Webby and <laughs> Webby's grunting back. I'm going to say 520-something, but I know it's gone up. Yeah, if you've got something on that, I'm afraid this week we can't be concise on it. Underlying view, probably stay at these values will go up. I don't know, it depends what happens with various, uh, you know, the Ukraine, etc., etc. So, yeah, my underlying view, having been to a European bourse, is on a piece of paper you couldn't justify to an accountant why this was a good idea. But the reality of it is the people we've seen, the conversations we've had, the dynamic of, of what people are up to, you only get when you get kind of off the official line and you're doing something, you know, like having a kebab with someone at an unearthly hour. It's been quite funny. There's been some bits. We took some recordings of one or two people, but the companies they work for are not allowed to have their faces or any comments made on any media ever at any point. Some of these big American firms are incredibly sensitive to such things, and it's it's really weird. So the luxury of being able to do this podcast or say what we like, which may, may be right or may be wrong, is quite a freedom, uh, bearing in mind land of the free and all that, and freedom of speech. Well, if you work for a, a major corporation, you haven't actually got that, which is quite interesting. Over everything, you know, European boss. Always good fun, always a whole load of fat ball blokes and a, and a whole load of kind of aspiring young men, you know, you know, strutting around and looking at the girls. It's an interesting mix. I will say as a Brit, it's much more difficult to travel abroad now. And there is a little element of looking down the nose at you with our current political situation going on. There is a few jokes being made about that, which you just have to take on the chin and pretend that you voted for Brexit and you think this trust is great. The only way I got back was telling some American guy that, surprisingly enough, the rest of the world hates them as well, which he seemed ultimately really surprised by. With that sad and unhappy thought, I shall leave you for this week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Please remember that any decision to trade on this opinion is yours. Thank goodness the Norfolk Dinner is back, hosted by the Norfolk Institute of Agricultural Merchants. This year's event will be at St Andrew's Hall in the centre of Norwich on Thursday the 19th of January 2023. There'll be food, a chance to talk and meet with each other, plus you can even get your name on the wall and be famous. To book your tickets and find out about sponsorship, email ben at doinggrain.co.uk. So that's the Norfolk Dinner, 19th of January 2023, St Andrew's Hall, Norwich. Let's make the grain trade alive and thrive again. Right, this week I have got with me James Beamish, who is the farm manager at Holcomb Estate. Good afternoon, James. Good afternoon, Andrew. And I've known James a long time now, so um, so we're going to be nice and relaxed. And as I just said to him, I've got no idea what we're going to talk about. So you're good with that, aren't you? We will see which way the afternoon goes. <laughs> Thing is, you are now getting a bit experienced at interviewing, aren't you? Because if you turn on the telly, there's quite often you with your pink-footed geese 
<laughs> there, yeah, there's been one or two incidents, and I, I made the mistake about two months ago of putting a picture on Twitter of a very empty reservoir, yeah. and yet three days later we had BBC Live breakfast news here at half past four in the morning discussing drought on Norfolk farms. Which is great, isn't it? It's a good spot of fame. Yeah, it, it certainly live television gets the heart beating that little bit, um, <laughs> that little bit more. But no, myself did some, and yeah, Harry Barnett, our potato manager, he picked up the story in the empty reservoir as well. And you know, feedback I think is relatively well received. Anyway. He is Harry's very natural with it as well, isn't he? You, you know, I, I saw a presentation when you had the Nuffield Scholars here, both of you. Yeah. You're getting very polished in your presentations, aren't you? You know, practice makes perfect. And, you know, I never saw myself even probably 10 years ago, you know, going into this much, I won't say a lot of public speaking, but it does come a little bit with the job. Holcombe is an incredibly important estate from a historical perspective. I mean, obviously we had the governor on our 100th episode. Tom came on and did, very kindly, did an interview for it to make us famous. But, you know, the actual Holcombe estate and all of the history, Cook of Norfolk, you know, so people look to this estate. If you do something, you can make a statement and it is listened to. I believe so, yeah. As you say, it's an estate that has got a lot of history and heritage and, you know, we still manage the land here at Holcombe and certainly the farming department with that heritage. It's amazing how the, you know, the threads of what the guides here 250 years ago were still sort of ingrained in what we're doing today. So, yes, and obviously it's a name that, you know, it's an estate that's probably well recognised and a name that, you know, if, if even if people don't know where it is, they've probably heard the name. Well, so. they, had, they had to study it in history, didn't they, somewhere along the line. The Agricultural Revolution and Cook and Norfolk was not necessarily the original idea, man, but he brought all of the good ideas of other people together and made it a very focused rotation drill. And as you said, he probably wasn't at the fore. If you look at the date, Cook and Norfolk probably came along that sort of generation after the Turnip Townsend, the Robert yeah. Bakewell, yeah. and one or two others. But... You know, Cook probably brought it together. One thing Cook certainly did pioneer was a longer-term farming system. Well, he looked after his tenants, didn't he, which is unheard of. He's just best to, like, thrash them till they're bleeding and then let them die or something. Whereas he actually looked after them, gave them the right facilities and gave them generational, two or three generational tenancies, which encouraged people to actually look after the land. He did. They were certainly the first 21-year um, agricultural tenancies, you know, built farmhouses fit for a farming business as well mm. and actively encouraged to look after the land as well. So, yeah. you know, all over the estate there are mole pits dug where they used to mull the land and used mm. to encourage that rotation, which, you know, maybe... He did pinch from others, but um, we, you know, we do give that no, one now to our. We give that one to our good friends down the road at you know the Turnip Towns End and the Rainham Estate. So we work yeah. closely with them now and let them have that one anyway. So, <laughs> so, so going back, right, ten years ago, you haven't come to this. You know, head of a massive, important estate like this normally goes to some you know posh kid who goes to Simon Sessor, doesn't it? You know, so, oh, I could do that job. Give us, give us a Range Rover. And your route was completely different. This this is inspirational to uh, to anybody. So how did you get to be here? Where were you before here? So turn turn the clock completely back. I'm a gamekeeper's son mm-hmm. from South Norfolk, and it was the, the Shots and Park estate. And probably my father, he was a gamekeeper all his life. He probably, you know, he went through the golden age of game management where it was all wild and there was a foo pheasants reared under a under a 
chicken and then to you know slightly more industrialized if you say and he probably steered me away from it and next best thing was got a harvest job on the estate where he was gamekeeper and mm-hmm. you know essentially the rest is history from there but interesting enough we had a you know we had a small farming conference here about three four years ago and yeah lord lester stood at the front and said that you know i think the last six employees employed by holcomb farming company five of them have all got degrees i was the one who haven't got a degree so i, <laughs> I worked hard but yeah worked hard you know i can attribute a lot of you know been in the right place and work with some really good people and opportunities have opened themselves so from shots did you go to easton or did you go straight to another farm how did it no work? i did uh yeah from shots i did what was back then a national certificate in agriculture which is a, yeah. a one-year very basic agricultural course quite enjoyed that so i then developed that into the three-year national diploma spent a year down on the norfolk suffolk border on a mixed arable and dairy farm and probably you know made me focus that i you know i didn't really want to work with dairy cattle <laughs> still enjoy you know beef and sheep but yeah milking every morning at quarter past four was not yeah. not where i wanted my career to go um from there i left there and had a year in australia mm-hmm. predominantly traveling around with my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife right. and if anything if that you know a test of a true marriage is go backpacking for 10 <laughs> months together that, that probably tests tests any relationship came back and almost yeah applied and almost had a job in mid-norfolk happened to be at Aylsham Livestock Market one Monday morning, I think it was on a Monday. Oh, blimey, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Met my old college lecturer, and he said, there's this gentleman called Paul Hoverson who manages the Saul Estate, mm-hmm. and yet yeah, he's looking for an operator. So I sort of went along thinking, well, I already had this other job, but yeah, and you know Paul as well as I do, that mm-hmm. once you spend a little bit of time with Paul, he can um, inspire you to do many things. Went to Saul for what would possibly thinking be two, three years, good place to get experience. Ended up yeah, with Sir John White and Paul there for 21 years as crop production manager. The dynamic of that wasn't just like, you know, go to a farm as the operator for two or three years. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, fine. But the dynamic of that, it changed, didn't it? You, you got the opportunity to get more involved. And, and I can remember... You know, back when I first met you, you know, whenever we had any conversations about the crop, Paul would bring you in and you would go into the detail of the soil. It was all about the soil, all about the actual farming process. Nothing to do with trading, nope. but to do with the, the, the real process of farming. If you're a farmer, surely that has to be the most important subject, doesn't it? Yes, I know that, you know, the, the marketing, as you well know, can have as bigger impact now as... but fundamentally you've got to have a crop to market yeah and you know as you quite rightly said you know we had a team there and you know under Paul's attention to detail and guidance that yes the the attention to detail the actual producing good quality high yielding crops was second to none the aspiration to get better and better and better wasn't it all those studies you'd on the water and all those things you were doing way beyond your remit if you like made knowledge just stick with you more and more and more didn't it absolutely which must have been why in the end when it came to down to right who do we want to get the Holcomb estate you know back into shape you know that was I was yeah I was asked to come up to Holcomb you know I don't think my interview process was a hour with Lord Leicester and I think the the MD at the time you know popped over to Saul and we had a chat but the job wasn't advertised you weren't nervous Uh, an hour the hour of Tom is like you know what am I doing in here? I yeah, put you in the know, big hall. You know, and you're I like, probably 
probably say it was a little bit akin to the live television and the heart beating yeah. but yes yeah no but you know soon put at ease and you know again credit to Paul that you know he made that transition quite easy as well he you know hopefully knew what I was capable of and what Holcomb needed and the, the two matched up so that's your modest I do appreciate that James right so here you sit you know the BBC wants you, whoever, you know, because you're on Country File as well with those pink-legged geese, weren't you? That was I was, the I was did a little bit on there, and, you know, not that too many people want to get sick of the sight of me, but I might be coming with more Michael Portillo in the future as well. So. <laughs> well and the, this is what railway journeys that don't Absolutely, exist anymore. Yes, yeah. God, blimey, you have to wear some red trousers <laughs> for that one. With that in mind, because you were talking on the Country File thing about the, the geese and, and the wildlife, and obviously with the direction of the farm, the book that, that every member of staff was, was asked to read, presented with a copy from the Earl of Leicester, saying, dirt to soil. Absolutely, yeah. So the dynamic of farming here has not just gone down there, get me as much money as you can and fill my grain stores, is it? You're now working towards whatever the best balance is. Fully agree, and I, you know, I've often said there's almost a sort of pendulum that you've got organic farming on one side of that pendulum, You've got, you know, we, for want of a word, we call it Taliban farming, where, you know, you throw your, the kitchen sink at a crop, you, you know, little regard for the environment around us. We like our pendulum to be nearer the organic, but we're not organic. And, you know, I'm, I'm in no doubt in my mind that if, we'd, if we carry on farming, and, you know, the whole world has changed over the last decade, mm. but, you know, if you carry on farming how we perhaps were in the 70s, 80s, 90s, we would run into no, serious trouble. Really. We, we, well, we are in trouble. And sustainable farming is now the new buzzword and people are not going to plough ever again. And, you know, but there's a place for everything within all of this, is there not? You know, I think when, when Tom Lester was on your podcast, I'm pretty sure he did mention that his challenge that he gave to the farming team up here is farming without size. That's right, yeah. That by 2030, he wants us to be farming, you know, without pesticides, essentially. So we've took some easy wins on that. So we now haven't used insecticides for two years. So I'm probably one of the few people in the country who have grown sugar beet with no neonicotinoid seed treatments and no foliar insecticides. Right. I've, you know, I'm probably a little bit ahead on that game in our geography that, you know, being up to the coast, we probably haven't got the aphid pressure. You know, if I was farming around Downham Market or Bury St Edmunds, it would be a slightly different approach. Well, they're all around you there, aren't they? Yes, they are. Yeah. But we do try and farm with the environment and nature behind us. So, you know, we, we put a lot of effort into our biodiversity as well, but almost trying to make the environment for the biodiversity that can help us you know, the beneficial insects we, we don't fully understand them and we don't fully understand what's below our feet in our soil but we're trying our hardest to work with nature if you like rather than maybe pushing against it so you're further down the road than most and within the group the catalyst group that you form with some other leading farms you're collecting data very very you know actively. yes we are yeah and what if you know do you feel inclined to share that information or do you feel inclined to like well, you know, here's, here's a commercial advantage. Where do, where do you stand on that one? We're open to a point. You know, we, yeah, we, we're putting a lot of investment into catalyst farming. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're probably at the moment, we are trying, we're keeping that, you know, we don't feel we're probably developed enough in catalyst at the moment and probably don't fully know what direction catalyst will fully end up. So, yeah. you know, we, we haven't really got enough relevant data at the moment where we can sell that data. Could this be that Holcomb, you know, 250 years on, all of a sudden, the cutting edge is like, right, this is it, we're leading. This is, you know, within the group is Holcomb, and 
here's some information. Everyone's searching for the right break crops, which what do you put in, what don't you put in, what do you put on to feed over the top, what can't you, what causes compaction. All of those questions everyone's trying to solve in three seconds flat. Well, there's companies trying to buy carbon credits off you and no one knows whether you should be selling them or whether you shouldn't. It's, it's a really, there's a lot of people hanging on the edges about to dive in and try and make money out of it, isn't there? There is, yeah. And a farmer is almost like, not the innocent, but the kind of like, there they sit, the land is the valuable resource in this carbon thing. What is the correct thing to do? If someone could find the golden ticket or answer to that, it would be worth quite a lot, wouldn't it? It certainly would. And, you know, I don't think that golden ticket is out there. It's tweaking and adapting what we do now rather than, you know, revolutionising what we do. 2030 seems a long way away, but, you know, it was 2019 when Tom laid this challenge and the, um, you know, the years tick by quite quickly. But, you know, we've got a certain element of caution and phased as well, where, you know, there's a lot of farming businesses in the country have, you know, completely gone down. I'm talking about my pendulum, they are, you know, they've gone in a direction quite hard and fast where rewilding you're talking about not so much rewilding but you know i don't like the term regenerative farming because you know it's it's a bit like vegans it's a word that could be very divisive and a sort of stereotypical word but you know there are those principles of regenerative farming which to be honest you know going back to my history we've adhered to them for 20 odd years but now they're a you know they're a movement that we all have to jump on a bandwagon with but to be fair those principles are good solid farming principles yeah there is a need for a serious supply of good quality food and if you go too far into a not ploughing, if you like, or for the want of a better example, you know, admixtures in samples, not purity of product means that you can't supply the product. You know, lots of these things were invented years ago for efficiency, for a cleaner crop, for Absolutely, you know, less well. weed. And, and so there's, there is a balance. But The only thing I'd add to that is that certainly in the last two years, probably more interest from end users on the sustainability and the provenance of their produce. And, you know, I've been involved with yourself with, you know, two or three meetings with molsters, and I think the molsters are certainly, you know, being asked by the end users, by breweries, on, you know, what does regenerative farming mean and the provenance. You know, we've got a large potato-grown operation here, and, you know, even though the, the skin finish on a salad potato is still ultimately the important factor, that... You know, we're we're scored and rated by all the processors this year on our sustainable goals, on our, you know, on how our potatoes and all our crops are produced, really. I've got British Sugar here in the morning talking exactly the same thing. I've got their sustainability manager coming, you know, because I am... I say, going back to what I just said, I've grown sugar beet insecticide-free. Mm. I've took all that risk myself. And, you know, my challenge to them was, should I be paid that little bit more for taking that risk? Because if it had all gone wrong... And, you know, I had this discussion with our MD and with Tom Lester that, you know, I'm going to grow these sugar beet insecticide-free, yeah. but that risk is on me. I could lose 40%, or we could lose... It was a joint decision. We could yeah. lose 40% of our yield through that. But we took that decision. But, you know, should the, should the consumer be paying that little bit more for that, possibly? Well, if not, you could be like, it could be a bit like Liz Truss and Quasi Quartang, where it, suddenly it was his idea. Yeah, it was his idea. She, did you see that? Do you see Laura Koonsberg's interview yesterday? I did see that, yes. But, went, yeah, it was his idea. 
depending on <laughs> depending on when your when your podcast goes out. I don't know whether there'll still be a quasi quartang by then. It'll be interesting. Well, no, he's going to be thrown under the bus because his idea didn't do it there. But luckily, Michael Gove said they they discussed it together to make sure she had some ownership. That was quite funny. Sorry, I shouldn't. I'm sure Tom won't do that to you. When people listen to the podcast, kind of want to know what's going on immediately at the moment. I'm going to give you something. Firstly, last spring and summer you know i've been accused of having like north norfolk boys who've got away with northeast norfolk boys who had a really lovely time last year didn't get much rain but they had rain at critical moments they had a lovely crop big crop everybody's happy now they're planting it and the land is lovely and all, all easy <laughs> tell us about your spring and summer last year so it was certainly an interesting spring. You know, spring barley drilling was probably, you know, I would say, on the 1st of April, we probably had a good-looking crops of spring barley. Yeah. Autumn crops looked absolutely fantastic. Yeah. The taps certainly turned off on the 1st of April, and we had 60 millimetres of rain from the 1st of April through till, I think it was the 15th of August. And yeah. that probably sounds better than what it is but a lot of that 60 mil came in two millimeters one day then three days later there was another three millimeters and there was no accumulation of moisture at all during our spring so you know cut a long story short i would say our autumn sown cereals performed relatively well yeah and it's amazing how the high uv lights through june Mm. the amount of you know intensity of sunshine through june what impact that has on cropping has been you know we had as you've mentioned many times on your podcast some of the best spec weights we've ever had on wheats mm. spring crops a total another story so yeah spring barley just about held in there but we had we had um quality all over the place and spring beans and maize we're harvesting maize at the moment in short the rain there wasn't enough rain it didn't come at the right time we have a contract which we're part of with, uh, with to supply adams with a lot of their barley you know that's been a very long running contract now yes it has and, yeah. they've, and luckily they've painted their name across the side of one of your hangers so they're <laughs> keen to stay i think but you know it was very difficult to achieve the yield and the nitrogen levels with no rain wasn't it you had a tough time is my point north norfolk wasn't just a doddle just for those of you elsewhere. absolutely not no it <laughs> It has been a tough time, and as you say, variable quality, variable yields as well. Probably worth highlighting that Adnams contract, though, that it's as commodity farmers, you know, farmers of commodities, we don't always know where our produce go, and, you know, we certainly don't talk to the people who use our produce. And, you know, we weren't far into that spring barley harvest, and, you know, you were part of it. We sat in this room here with Dan and Fergus and the the guys from Bore Malt as well who do the malting process. And, you know, it took a few years to get there, but it was an open, healthy conversation about look you know if if we're going to get more springs like this if we get you know more of these we do seem to get these more either extreme wet or extreme dry Mm -hmm. that you know we can't sit here and guarantee that we can produce you x amount of x quality barley year on year we can do all we can do and we can help it by proving our soil structures by getting our timing right and we can do everything in our power but at the end of the day if it doesn't rain there's not a lot we can do. Everyone in that little group is all pulling the rope to achieve the good, isn't it? I yes, mean, they are. And, yeah. and we do invariably. And yeah, it's a very good example of, a, of an end user being understanding and the producer bearing his soul. This is it. And we they come here and have a look and we walk around and, you know, and we experimented with some irrigation, although you make more money out of spuds with irrigation, we appreciate. <laughs> but interesting study, wasn't it? It was an interesting study. And yeah, you know, it can two, two and a half tons a hectare and very good quality barley from. One, you know, probably more luck than judgment, well-timed irrigation of 20 millimetres of rain at the end of May. But, you know, going back to Harry, who manages our potato operation, that 
yeah, we, we wouldn't have been able to take too much more out of the pot because they come very close to you, running out at you, the end as well. You're talking about your dry reservoirs now, aren't Absolutely, you? yes. The pot, yeah. which in the end, more and more reservoirs need to be built. You built reservoirs without grant, didn't you? Yes, we did. Yeah, we have. Yeah, so there's a little lesson, everybody. You haven't got to have a grant to build a reservoir. You've got to have the, the foresight to see the need. It will give you a reward, won't it? It will give you a reward, but, you know, but a reward over long term. And you know, we've, we've looked at mechanisms within the estate of how they're funded and how they're funded over a, a long term. You know? mm. Not so many now, but there's you know, a few years over the last decade where there's been no water pulled on that resource at all. And you know, they look very expensive reservoirs then, but mm. a year like this, they can certainly come into their own. I certainly made that barley. We, I remember walking in the field. You could visibly see the difference in the skin and, and the yield. I can, you know, it's one of those moments, wasn't it? it Absolutely. It works, Absolutely. but there's more money in potatoes than there is in, you know, in barley. Some of that is a UK water strategy, if you like. We live in a temperate climate. We have a lot of rainfall fall in parts of the country, and we have a lot of rainfall fall over the winter. And you, you say that, you know, we can build reservoirs without grants, but... You know, it's a big, big investment to do that. But from a food security point of view, you know, we've got to look longer term on how we can utilise the resources that we have got. Mm, absolutely. Now, that's, luckily, we've got a very forward-thinking government on that change. <laughs> so let's get into the autumn of 22. OK, so it's actually right now, if I can say from a distance, going rather well. It's not felt up here as if it's flowed. We've had Three or four days of drilling, and then we had two or three days of rain, and three or four days of drilling. But as we're recording this, we're 60% through probably serial drilling. Mm-hmm. You know, we have a good forecast ahead of us now for the next seven days. So, yeah, I would like to think in seven to ten days' time, this part of the world will be drilled up. Potatoes are virtually all out of the ground. You know, for the wrong reasons, the maize harvest is nearly all in just one clamp rather than three clamps. But, yeah, yeah. you know, land has been cleared in really good conditions, and, you know, being able to drill it up behind so you know not want to upset people across the rest of the country that can be too wet or too dry but this small part of the world we're we've made up for our woes through um april may and june and in well, pretty good position if we get another you know spring and summer like last year then you know all of this good work will go the risk that you face is the lightness of the land isn't it and the draining of it and the need for regular water whereas some of those more retaining soils Although I've got to say that there isn't a lot of water retained within them in, no. the, in other parts of the country. Yeah, it's, you know, it's all to play for. But as you drive along, things look well. And that's where, you know, for risk adversity, we have a diverse cropping as well. So we're a split between autumn and spring cropping. We then have the potatoes. We have sugar beet. We still dabble with some oilseed rape. And, you know, that diversity of cropping normally means that, you know, one of those crops is going to benefit in any giving weather pattern and and some of them might drop out with a caveat being that of 2020 when I think they did all drop out you know that was definitely one of the most difficult years in my farming career anyway yeah yeah well you had a what was a harvest 21 was kind in the sense you had a lovely crop of very good low nitrogen barley across the board and yes, we did, a, yeah you know, there's, and, the, and the luxury of this last harvest was the amount of grain that was cut dry so there's, there's always good and bad in every year isn't there and uh, yeah you know going back to reporting on television that i think they expected all all doom and gloom but you know i just said you know it was the 14th of august we've finished harvesting in five weeks we've not turned the dryer on once you know if we could have this every year you know jobs are good yeah <laughs> 
You're going to lose your, your ticket of being as a farmer spokesman if you don't watch out. You've got to be miserable. I'm You're quite happy to lose that ticket. You've got to go, oh, yeah, things are terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I can't resist saying things like that. Anyway, so the other thing I wanted to, to talk to you about, because today is the day that they published the list of future stores. And yet again, you know, Holcomb Estate are a store up here at Eggmere next to the ABN mill. And the hangar across the way there... It says Adnams across the front. (laughs) 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 Hasn't in fact got barley in at all. Anyway, it is a futures shed, as is the other sheds registered over here. And on an annual basis, you know, we've been managing that as the storekeeper for you, and you as the farmer get the futures price less a measly commission for the poor merchant. And the dynamic this year is an enormous difference. I mean, the ex-farm grain November is £15 lower than futures price. So it's a very obvious thing for a big estate if they've got the capacity and the mentality to do it. But it is a pain in the butt, isn't it, as well? There's other people going to have looked at this or maybe not even thought about it. What's the downsides to being a futures store? I would say the downside for us, and, and well compared with other people, might even be multiplied up, that our futures stores, as anyone who's driven up the B1105, our T2 Second World War aircraft hangar, which were built in 1943 for a completely different purpose, and we've adjusted, you know, we've adapted them into storing grain. And it is, you know, it's the upkeep of an older shed like that, but, you know, an upkeep of any shed, really, that we do get audited at least once a year, generally more than once a year. So the attention to detail in intake, in outtake, it's in... greater than just a task. Yes, it is, yeah. an ACCS, isn't it? It's... Absolutely. And I'm, you know, blessed here that I've got Kevin and Paul in the Weybridge, and, you know, they look after it fantastically. Seven, eight years ago, we had an audit, or we would have audits, mm-hmm. and, you know, the three days before, it was, you know, we were all sweating and not sleeping at night, because what are they going to find and what are they going to do? But, you know, again, we've got processes and systems in the way now, and we work with, you know, you guys as well. So, it, you know, it becomes part of what we do now rather than being something to fear but it does mean that yes we've got to have systems in place and and it's not just having the attention to detail for small parts of the year or for you know but it is all year round on you know and it's monitoring the grain it's looking after that grain it's the upkeep of the shed so you do have to take that that little bit higher I thought you were going to say that it's the fact that it, I mean, this last year it didn't get empty, did it? Not until the very end. It got to the point where at the very end it was still dragging there and, and most of harvest had come in for next year. It, got, it was in the way, wasn't it? The it was, and we do get that most years that, in theory, I should say, it should all be gone by mm, the 31st of July. Of July. At the end of July. It, should, it definitely should all be gone by the end of July yeah. at the very latest. This last year, if you remember, the world was short of wheat. It would definitely go, definitely go. And lo and behold, every farmer in the rest of the country suddenly had some left over, and the merchants could buy it cheaper. The people in the futures just left it there because they were getting stuffed out with wheat from farm. Still in the way for you, wasn't it? It was still in the way, and, you know, we had... I think you were sunning yourself in Italy at the time, weren't you? And we Probably. were somewhere... You were sunning yourself somewhere. I and, was, yeah, off I went to You know, there was, there was many a conversation that, you know, we still had two and a half, three thousand tonnes of wheat in the back of the shed, and I could see the combines getting dangerously close to cutting new crop wheat. So, but... Again, communication and, you know, working with partners like yourself that we, we got round it, come up with solutions, and we were still finished well, nothing, harvest no, on the 14th. So. Yeah, nothing ever goes to plan, does it? No, it doesn't, no. And uh, it's how you deal with those moments. I mean, the upside of being a futures store is a greater financial return, Absolutely. isn't it? And, yeah. and you can, at any point in time, know the value of your... You can look at that futures price, yep. take the diddy bit off and go, right, that's what we're going to get. From a budgeting perspective, there's no sort of lack of transparency at any Absolutely. point. Absolutely, budgeting perspective and also, you know, marketing in general, as, you know, all our 
combinable serials now are fixed against futures mm. you know contracts related to futures and you know for me now marketing all the grain it's you know you can constantly look 18 24 months ahead and you know we've traded a reasonable amount of harvest 23 at the moment so you know it that gives us that good. foresight that, as well that might so. be good that might be bad who knows but certainly against budgeted cost of production it is i've never we've never seen margins no. as big as that have we no we haven't and you know we've bought our fertilizer for next year we've marketed 35 40 percent of our grain for next year as well so you know i already know that we've got a solid foundation for harvest 23 and yeah. you know starting to look towards harvest 24 already as well yeah, no, indeed. Yeah, all of us are going to have to, in this brave new world of when a commodity is going to be in massive oversupply again, I suspect not for a very long time. It's, no, I don't think so. You know, and the dynamic of how the UK grain trade works, one thing's very clear by you saying about your contracts all being linked to futures as the common denominator point. If you didn't have that contract, the transparency of the UK grain market would disappear. And so it is a vital contract. I'm saying that to the great wide you know, UK grain trade and all consumers and all farmers, you need to protect that contract, not just to keep doing grain in business, but to keep yourselves on a balanced level line where you know its value. You can Everybody can work off it, but you need the contract to trade for it to exist. Fully agree. Fully agree. It's a, as we all know, you know, the volatility out there in weather-related incidents around the world and, you know, what Vlad is doing at the moment, yeah. it, it does just give us, I say, that little bit of grounding looking forward so we can actually base things on you know on making farming and you know systems decisions going forward over time. Yeah, firm plans on firm prices. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So as far as it goes, James, you know, you've come from Shotsum Estate, Gamekeeper's son, farm manager at Holcomb Estate. What next? I'm still very, very happy, you know, Holcomb are on a on a journey, which we are at the beginning of that journey of the environmental farming, which I think we need to do. It's a family and a business that's been here for 400 years. Mm-hmm. And we're now hopefully putting into the foundations of, you know, having the same family and the, the same farming business here for the next 400 years. So, you know, it's, I'm not going to say it's without challenges. Farming with nature or that holistic farming that we're practicing at the moment, it's throwing up some challenges, mm-hmm. uh, you know, challenges which hopefully more short term than long term. So there's still a lot to be done at Holcomb and one I enjoy that sort of influence we do have maybe over the not influence is the wrong word but yeah no, you know people influence. looking to us and, and maybe yeah. looking a little bit on you know us for some answers the other one is bringing the talent on and you know going back to you know my journey to where I am today I use my grounding and my experience over the last 25 30 years got an exceptional team here at Holcomb at the moment a mixture of you know guys who have been here for a, a while with experience but then some young guys coming through as well so for the first time we've got two apprentices here this year as well and and you know technically I've been one of those moaning farmers who say oh, there's no one good coming into farming but they're not doing anything at all about attracting those young people in as well so something that's very dear to my heart you know I've got there's a lot to be done in the future over that you benefited from that didn't you the Absolutely. dynamic of yeah. being involved and being yeah. allowed to be in the thinking process and then growing your role as because you became interested and really into it and if you can see the benefits that happen to you and you pass it on because you need all of us are only here for a little while absolutely and and you know so, an estate like holcomb you can definitely feel that we are all here just as a you know a holding the reins for however long a period that might be and it's been here a long while yeah. it'll continue to be here a long while but if we can leave it in a better place than when we started we can take pride away with that i think that's a great way to finish james thank you so much for your time today 
one last thing. I didn't have time because you sprung this on me a little bit this morning to get the beers in, but assure your team the beers will be coming to Rail. <laughs> yeah, do you know what? Yeah, we're nearly born again non-drinkers most weeks <laughs> on this, but yeah, appreciate that. Been a pleasure, Andrew. Thank Cheers. you. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Make sure you subscribe to get new episodes as they are released and follow us on Twitter. We are at Dewing Grain. Call Dewing Grain on 01263 731 or email info at dewinggrain.co.uk. The Dewing Grain podcast is produced by East Coast Design Studio in Norwich.